The Bob Murphy Show, episode 127. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show in this episode i'm going to be talking with controversial theologian Michael Harden, and you'll see as we get into it that he's got some very unique views as he explains his his vision of the gospel. But let me just tell you the quick story as to how this interview came to be. Back in early June, I get an email out of the blue from this guy, and he just says, hey, Dr. Murphy, I'm a theologian, a lecturer, and an author, just as a way of introduction. And he recently started getting into uh, free market economics, just, you know, that genre, not necessarily that he endorsed it. And he's gotten the works of Mises and he mentioned that, you know, he really found my my work useful and and as a newcomer coming to learn about this stuff. And so that, that was the point of his email. He was just dropping me a note of gratitude and that was that. And however, I just his his email address and his website and the signature was preachingpeace.org. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting, being as I'm a Christian pacifist. So I clicked that, and then I was very impressed by his website. You know, it's a very professional-looking one. And when you go to it, he's got all these quotes taken from his various books that just sort of appear on the screen. And I just read a few of them, and I was very taken by them. And so I said, hey, you want to come on the show, and let's talk about this stuff. So that's that's where this came from. Let me just read some of these. Uh, here's one. The cross is the place of God's self-revelation where God is not all-powerful but has surrendered all power into our hands. And another profound one. Jesus' death is God's way of coming into the machinery of sacrifice and tossing in a wrench to stop it from working ever again. And I am learning to listen to the voice of love that has come to me deep inside the deep, deep love of Jesus. So, I thought those were sufficiently intriguing that, hey, let's have this guy on the show. Let's talk about this stuff. And so I should go without saying, I don't necessarily endorse everything he says, but very fascinating perspective. And I'm not going to try to summarize it anymore. Just see for yourself. It's a, it's a very quick moving conversation, as you'll see. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Michael Harden. Well, Michael, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thanks, Bob. So uh, there's a lot of material we could go through here, but I think the best way to intrigue my listeners and keep them interested who may not be overtly religious, um, I, I have a battle plan, folks. And so let me just start, though, in your book, Knowing God, let me read a, a passage here and then have you respond to it. You say, the author, referring to yourself, was raised Roman Catholic in America, but like a lot of youth, got converted to Protestantism 43 years ago. It has not been a happy conversion for either Protestantism or myself. For those two score plus decades, I have been a pilgrim wandering about Protestantism in America. I have attended churches that were conservative, fundamentalist, evangelical, liberal, progressive, emergent, charismatic, pacifist, in theory, militant, to just, na- just to name a few, 
And in these 43 years, I have yet to find a congregation that has actually learned to live into the message of Jesus. So uh, so what do you mean by that? Those are some strong statements, Mr. Harden. Yes, sir. Hey, how about if we jump into the deep end and and take this Nautilus submarine straight down into the Marianas Trench and get right to the jugular vein, right to the heart of the matter? Here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Grace is a category that defies explanation in terms of exchange. Okay. The world lives their entire existence as an economy of exchange. We are we are exchange creatures and 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 for those that do the work that can go back into paleoanthropology and and suss this stuff out like uh who is it David Graeber did. I think is it David Graeber wrote the big fat book on debt. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm I I mean my office has got thousands of theology books and I know the authors but this economic stuff is all new to me and I'm mixing up authors with books I'm reading cuz I'm reading a book a day it's crazy I read your book the other day and then I went and got human action and I'm working on that it's just like this stuff is crazy. Anyway, so we are all embedded in this economy of exchange. We exchange our time for money, money for goods and services. We exchange favors with the deity. God, I'll do this if you'll do that. Mm-hmm. The, the whole of human species is transactional, and grace is a category that's non-transactional. And so the Christian tradition um, makes the fatal mistake of mixing the gospel and the law. Mm-hmm. And they fail to understand the relationship between the two as Jesus did and Paul did. And so you end up really with a gospel that's about the law. Fundamentally, we're saved so we can go do and thus earn the favor of God. And then you bring in that whole understanding from the book of Deuteronomy. The scholars call it the Deuteronomic hermeneutic. And you cannot say that when you've had three tequila shots. I'll tell you that right (laughs) now. So it, it basically, if you do good, you're blessed. If you do bad, you're cursed. Like in the book of the De- Deuteronomy, the peoples are on the mountains and these people are doing the curses. If you're bad, and these are doing the blessings. If you're good, well, Jesus deconstructs that when he says, mm. God makes rain to shine. Uh, God makes rain to fall on, on just and unjust and sun to shine on good and evil. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no transaction with divinity in the gospel. But the church has turned everything into a transaction with the divinity, whether it's the charismatics with their tithing nonsense, whether it's the uh, Calvinists with their legalistic nonsense and their moral nonsense, or um, whether it's the liberals with their PC nonsense. Everybody has legislation that they're looking to bring into the gospel. Tree. And the gospel doesn't do that. The gospel liberates by destroying transactional analysis. How does it do that? Forgiveness. When I forgive you your debt, your debt is gone. Mm -hmm. It's over. Nobody can hold it against you. Not me. Not I'm the primary agent here. Nobody can still say, hey, you you hurt Michael. You owe him. I've forgiven that debt. I've completely obliterated anything in in our understanding of each other that's transactional. You don't have Mm -hmm. to earn that forgiveness. It just is freely given. And we have a whole problem with forgiveness in Christianity because we talk about forgiveness apart from the gospel as though it's something that has to be earned. They didn't repent, therefore I'm not going to forgive them. Or how can I ever forgive them? The, 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 the And culture, this is human culture, by the way. And so the church embraces these questions and acts as though these are legitimate questions. The reality is if you've been confronted by the, the Jesus of the gospels, you recognize you are a persecutor. That's when when Jesus confronts Paul, he confronts him as a persecutor. 
Mm-hmm. He doesn't confront him with religion. He confronts him with the issue of violence. When every human being realizes our tendency to violence, when we get that and we realize that's what we're converted from and we are forgiven our violence against Christ on the cross. You know, I don't know about your hearers. Um, some of them may appreciate this. I don't know. Some might not. But several years ago, I use Rene Girard's mimetic theory. Right, as, right. Uh, one of the tools in my frame. And so I have this this series on the Eucharist I wrote on my website about how when we come to the bread, we're participating in this original primary cannibalistic act as a community of destroying a victim, getting rid of our hostility, and then we consume the victim and we we drink the blood. Mm-hmm. Okay. So with the gospel, what, what we're doing is we are engaging in this cannibalistic act with intention. We're eating this this victim, this Jesus, but Jesus will not allow his body to come to us as anything other than life. He mm-hmm. doesn't allow it to, the cup to come back with vengeance like the blood of Abel. His cup comes back with forgiveness. So I'm at this house church in England, right? There's this long table in this long dining room with benches on it. You can tell this thing's like a century old, this table. It's had a lot of guests around it. And it's, I mean, it's old. It's not, you know, in great shape. Mm-hmm. And we had this meal and this house church said, could you lead us in Holy Communion? And they had a loaf of bread and, and, a, and, a, and a, a goblet there with some red wine in it and the, and the bread knife. I said, sure. And I took that knife and I started stabbing that bread. And I'm, I'm, I'm yelling at the top of my lungs, Jesus, you mother effer, you piece of shit. I'm stabbing this bread, right? Mm-hmm. And then I, I passed it to the next one. I said, your turn. They looked at me. Like, I imagine they would. <laughs> And, and they passed it on. Well, out of the group of 15, 17 people, there were only three or four people did it. They would go, I don't like you, Jesus. Touch the knife to the bread. I don't like you. It's just like until you can own that when push comes to shove, mm-hmm. you are one selfish son of a gun. Right. Uh, and when push comes to shove, you can hate as easy as the next person in a mob. And when push comes to shove, you can be as jealous or envious as anybody until you recognize all of that in yourself. You cannot begin to understand what it is to be forgiven. And when you are forgiven mm-hmm. by, by God, it's an enormous thing. And you realize not only are your debts forgiven, but nobody can have a debt against you ever. You can't mm-hmm. hold debts. So, so can I ask, I, I think I get your point, but let me just make sure the listeners understood that. Your point in that was to say, if I understand, yeah, modern Christians, they might pay lip service to, oh, my sins put Jesus up there on the cross. He was dying because of me. But they don't really believe that. They actually think there's a lot of people that are worse than me. And I'm actually pretty good as far as humans go. Am I getting it? You're and, on, spot on, babe. Uh, okay. There you okay. go. It's all transactional, right? Mm-hmm. I have a little more on this side of the ledger than I do on that side of the ledger. So when I go through the pearly gates, I'll get in. Right. Okay. And and that's what I wanted to circle back. So, because I think a lot of congregations would, when they heard, you know, your original thing about that they're looking at it as transactional and they still are conflating the law with the gospel, they would say, no, we don't, Michael. Look at, listen to what we say. We get up there every Sunday and preach about how, you know, your actions don't save you. It was the work on the cross and it's your faith, blah, 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 you know, depending on the nuances. So, but is your point that they might say that, but you don't, you, their actions belie their words, or you think even doctrinally what they're saying isn't really accurate? Both. Both. Okay. Carl Broughton is a Lutheran theologian back in the 80s. He said, you know, the problem with Lutheranism is they'll, they'll preach grace for mm-hmm. 29 minutes in a sermon. And then the last minute of the sermon, they'll say, but, or 
and or right. if, and they'll do what he calls a semi-Pelagian turn. You have to, you ought to, you must. And once you mm. do that, once mm-hmm. you introduce that conditionality, mm-hmm. you have lost the gospel. Right, right. And even I've always thought too, like just in terms of the, the pure consequences or whatever, that it's like a, a parent to a child to say, you know, you better do your chores or else I won't love you. That kid's not going to do their chores as much as the other one who knows no matter what I do, my parents are going to love me. Yeah. So even yeah. in terms of just affecting behavior like that, that, that is a kind of a, a sadistic uh, approach. Oh, it's, you know, most Christians have a God that when they pray, they hope that God ain't been drinking because when he's drinking, <laughs> he's mad. They have a right. God with anger management problem. I mean, they right. don't have the father of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And all, all of atheism, by the way, all of atheism is correct. The God of Christianity is an idol. And this is very, very important. Not, not, notice I didn't say the church. Mm-hmm. But see, <laughs> as this is important. The God of Christendom, this two-faced, Janus-faced God that we have inherited from Augustine and the East has inherited from Plato, mm-hmm. both are dualistic Janus-faced gods. The Father of Jesus is the only non-Janus-faced God because we humans only know how to create two-faced gods, two-sided gods. It's all we know how to do. And that comes from early on the process of symbolization in the scapegoating mechanism, the development of language, symbols being the first binary thing with a binary meaning, this and that, which allows us to create metaphors Mm -hmm. and the narratives. Okay, so let me, so I think a lot of people would say something along the lines of, yeah, you're right, this too, like, there's the God of the Old Testament who was mean and vengeful and you know, just a real tough guy. And then Jesus was very loving and compassionate. And it seems like yeah. there's the two faced getting. So Again, that's, that's, mm-hmm. that, but that's a, that is known as supersessionism. Once you do that, you're saying Christianity has a superior revelation to Judaism. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. There is in both testaments, a stream of religion. Religion is where God is identified with violence in one form or another, whether it's eschatological, uh, political, social, militaristic, whatever. There's another stream in both Testaments where God is, in a sense, being set free from this idolatrous view that this God is a God of violence. And so you can find certain texts, for example, um, Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Abraham takes Isaac up, gonna sacrifice him because that's what you did. All the all the you know uh, elites did this with their oldest son, and uh, that's just you know de rigueur for the time. And yet there is this break with that pattern in the introduction of animal sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, as you move through um, uh, Jewish the development of Jewish history, you you find that there is in the prophetic tradition, both pre and post exile a break with even animal sacrifice and God desires the sacrifice of a contrite heart kind of thinking. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there's this move away from that and there's a theological move as well. And we see this particularly in Isaiah and second Isaiah, especially Jesus favorite portion of scripture, by the way, second Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40 to 55. And, and then when you get to the new Testament, you still have both. So you have the, this, this clear, as the New Testament writers would put it, revelation of the Father in the Son. 
As the son is nonviolent, he reveals the father's nonviolent. As the son is judgmental, he reveals the father's judgmental. But you also have a tradition in the early church that is going to attempt to remythologize Jesus. That is, bring Jesus and his teaching into line with this Janus face God of Second Temple Judaism. And we see this in the gospel, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. So um, following Michael Gould or just about anybody out there that Matthew's using Mark, you'll notice that Matthew has all kinds of texts related to vengeance, eschatological, end-time vengeance, um, tit-for-tat thinking, as well as this extraordinary pacifism that one finds in the gospel. So there's both. And Matthew's community is not quite broken free. Well, when you look at the history of early Christianity, you recognize Matthew's community is coming from Antioch, which is where Paul lost the debate with Peter, James, the Jerusalem church, who wanted to make sure Gentiles became Jews and followed certain elements of the law. You could say, oh my gosh, there's the historical link. Here's how this all plays out. We see this in Matthew, James, I suspect First Peter, I've not quite done all the work I need to do there, but you definitely find it in Jude, the little letter of Jude, and the uh, book of the Revelation of John. Just to make sure the listeners are under, are you saying those humans were still locked into the old framework and that's why yeah. their interpretation yeah. of Jesus yeah, had have, that you flavor? Have one, you have one early church tradition locked mm. into this framework. They're, they're living in Jerusalem. They're, they're Jewish, just as Paul is Jewish. But they're insisting that in order to become a Christian, a Gentile has to first become a Jew, get circumcised, follow a kosher table, keep Sabbath, these kinds of things, right? Now, what Paul has done is he's, and the Johannine writer, Luke, Mark, Hebrews, uh, are the great texts of the New Testament. What they've made very, very clear is that there is no relationship of Jesus or God to this kind of sacrificial thinking Janist-faced God-thinking, judgment-God-thinking that one finds in Second Temple Judaism, the Qumran mm-hmm. War Scrolls, uh, the apocalyptic literature, the Pharisees, the Psalms of Solomon. Um, you can find it in the Pseudepigrapha, First Enoch, which was very influential on the New Testament writers, you know, these kinds of things. They're abandoning that. So, for example, I'm going to be starting a new video series, and I show that When Paul's writing his first letters, the Thessalonian letters, in 41, he's only been converted for about seven years. He's still under the influence of the Jerusalem church. But there's a break. We got six years, seven years. There's a break. And when Paul comes back and he writes, you know, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Romans, Galatians, the Corinthian correspondence, there's a real difference in his thinking. And I'm tracing that thinking back to Paul's rejection of the use of the law by the Jewish Christians, by Jesus' brothers. Mm -hmm. Paul's essentially saying, you might have grown up with Jesus, but you don't get him, I get him. Right. You know, so I see these two trajectories. They're in both traditions, Judaism and Christianity. I can go to a synagogue and hear the gospel. Mm -hmm. And I can go to a hundred churches and hear garbage. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yep, yep. I can go to a mosque. If it's, I mean, if, if an imam, you know, was sufficiently oriented in their tradition toward nonviolence, and there are some in Australia that are really making some wonderful headway here and in interpreting the Quran this way, there's more gospel there than there's going to be, say, at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. Hmm. Okay, let me, um, you've alluded a few times to um mimetic theory. Well, I forget the exact, but I knew what you were referring to. So let me, so your PhD thesis that you're working on right now is 
I guess the tentative title is Must God Be Violent? Question mark colon Religion and Revelation and Karl Barth and Rene Girard. So now, so now here on the on this show, we've. Do you, are you familiar with David Gornowski? I know David. David, I think I introduced David to Rene Girard many, many years ago. Okay, well then he introduced you know, so you can see the this fruit of yeah. your efforts because he introduced him to, to me. Well, he, I had a long, yeah. a long discussion on the show with him, and it was real, really fascinating. So, can you briefly explain you know who those those two thinkers are and the relate? Like, what what does this have to do with your view about scapegoating and you know and and so forth? So Girard would be the one thinker. Who's the other thinker you're thinking of? Well, no, you said Carl Barth. I'm oh, just Carl talking Barth. about. I see. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, this is a this is just a bit of history then to context things. Mm-hmm. I grew up Roman Catholic, entered into Baptist fundamentalism, lived in Hades there for about eighteen months. Mm-hmm. Uh, became entered into the Jesus movement. Met my wife. Lived in this lovely, lovely Jesus movement Christian community commune type thing. It was it was you know hippie bliss, right? Right. Until it all fell apart because the charismatics came in with their whole top-down heavy shepherding movement. You got to obey the leader's BS. And I went on to seminary, but I discovered uh, Karl Barth when I was in Bible college. I was 19 years old. I was learning Greek and Hebrew, and I discovered Karl Barth. He's a Swiss theologian from the 20th century, uh, perhaps the most important thinker in the 20th century theologically. So um, I became an instant fan of both Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So both of those uh, are influences on me. And Bonhoeffer is in many ways the more important influence. Um, but at any rate, uh, I carried on with this. And, and just for people, their, their secular claim to fame is that they stood up to Hitler, right? I mean, No, it, no, no, no. Listen, people misrepresent Bonhoeffer. Okay. When I was in seminary in the 80s, my professor was F. Burton Nelson. He was a Bonhoeffer scholar, secretary of the society, mm-hmm. and in charge of the oral history project. He brought through our campus on speaking tours over a dozen of Bonhoeffer students and family members. And I've met at least 15 of them. Uh, spent a lot of time with them, was involved in working on a screenplay for a film back when I was in seminary uh, with, you know, Bonhoeffer mm-hmm. scholars. So let me just say that Bonhoeffer's mostly misrepresented um, out in the non-Bonhoeffer society field. And even then, I think Bonhoeffer is is not being appropriated in the best manner by Current Bonhoeffer scholarship. I, I, I they're, they're, they, Dietrich had a huge love for the church, mm-hmm. um, and and yet he's very critical of it at the same time. Same with me. I have a deep love for the church. I would love to be able to go to church on a Sunday morning, right? Mm-hmm. But I can't because it's just, I, it's, it's like it's like epicac for the mind or something. I can't bother. Mm-hmm. Now Bart loved the church. Your moderns now that are. They don't love the church. They don't love much. And they're mm-hmm. just critical of everything. Well, with Bart, um, I came to some massive turns because I read voraciously. So Calvin and Luther and Augustine and the fathers, the Greek fathers, the Latin, everything. And I realized this whole Western paradigm had problems. So I began gutting that out in the late 80s. And that's when I met Rene Girard. Um, I discovered his work in 87. I met him in 90. And we've, the Colloquium on Violence and Religion was founded that year. It's an AARSBL uh, group. Um, 
And everything turned on its head for me because up to this point as a Bartian, I'm eschewing philosophy, you know, where the, the whole Bartian thing is you begin with this epistemology that starts with revelation. You don't do philosophy. Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden here I am reading Girard and I'm doing sociology and yet it's making more sense than this pure revelatory standpoint that I had with Bart. And so for the next, uh, what, quarter century, I really wrestled with these two approaches and how, you know, could they be integrated? Which part of which approach best critique the other? Is it possible to bring the best pieces of the whole thing together? How much of it can I bring together? How much Bart can I bring in? How much Girard? So my dissertation is that to bring Bart and Girard together uh, on the level of epistemology. The thesis that I'm using in, in my dissertation is exactly the same that I use in Knowing God, which is written for basically 16-year-olds. I tried to write it for that level. Mm-hmm. And that's simply that the victim provides the epistemological basis for all knowledge in both science, the human sciences, and theology. Okay. Can... Can you just give us a little more? So Bart is a theologian. Bart's a theologian. Girard, Girard is, uh, is not. I mean, he's is he even overtly religious? I mean, he talks a lot about religion's oh, role in human. Catholic. Girard, Girard, Rene and Martha were devout Roman Catholics. Okay, uh, okay. When, and when he passed, uh, Martha had a beautiful requiem mass for him. It was beautiful. It was long. I'd never been mm-hmm. to a requiem mass, but but it was beautiful. Okay, can you just, again, just a little bit for the context before we get into the, like, you know, the nuances. Mm-hmm. So, again, so, mimetic me theory this, and let, scape. Let, let, let mm-hmm. me do this this way. Right. If somebody says to you, why do you believe what you believe? You have several responses. You can say, I've studied. Mm-hmm. You can say, I've wrestled with my doubts existentially. There's any number of things you could say, but you can also say, I trust. Mm-hmm. Right. The gospel epistemology begins with I trust. Human knowledge or gnosis begins with I know or I think. The ultimate Gnostic is Descartes. I think, therefore I am. Mm-hmm. I, there's, I mean, that's why the entirety of, of, post, of enlightenment and post-enlightenment Christianity is dualistic. How did we end up in America with a tradition as fundamentalist as fundamentalism is and a tradition that's as liberal as liberalism is both claiming to come out of the Protestant Reformation. How did that happen? You know? I, I don't, I, I, I understand what you're asking and I don't know what the oh, answer is. How is it that both Puritans <laughs> uh-huh. and Congregationalists could settle this country? That, so you, you can trace this back, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Liberal tradition, the Yale Congregationalist tradition, the Puritan Princeton tradition, right? You can trace this all back. You can go back to Descartes. You go back to the early church. You go back to Augustine's Manichaeism. You can go back to Gnostic influence of Samaritan Gnosticism and early Christianity like we see in Colossae. Um, but you can go all the way back to James, Peter, Jude, Jesus' family, brothers, the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, who had a dualism, Jesus and, Jesus and the law, Jesus and the temple, Jesus. And once you say Jesus and, if you put anything on the other side of of that conjunction than the word, the heavenly father, you have no gospel. Mm -hmm. Now it's, it's Jesus is the forgiving victim that, that functions as the fulcrum of revelation for theology, but it's, it's the victim as the source 
of human culture and religion in the mimetic theory as you go back and you uncover um, the relationship between ritual and myth uh, in um, ancient civilization. And we see the victim there provides the three pillars of culture, myth, ritual, and prohibition. We see from from religion comes culture. This is um, the evidence that I think Gobekli Tepe provides us. But first comes religion. Okay, can you give us a little more about mimetic theory and scapegoating? Mimetic theory is really simple, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, there's four basic parts. Uh, the first is humans are the only species that don't know what they want. Once our needs are met, we have these things called wants or desires. And mm-hmm. that's primarily because our brain is far more enlarged than our primate ancestors. And we also have the corpus callosum, which allows the interconnection between the brains. And our neural networks, our capacity for imitation is far larger. So as we're evolving from ape to human in this process, we're going to lose the one mechanism the primates have that stops conflict, which is the dominant submission model. If you and I are apes and we're fighting over a banana, the moment one of us does this, the fight's over, the other one takes the banana and it's done. Humans, the object of desire drops out of sight and the other becomes more like the other. I'll give you the best example everybody relates to, spouses. Spouses that's, that an argument starts over something very, very simple, whether the husband failed to put the forks from the sink into the dishwasher, whether the wife failed to do the vacuuming. I don't know. It can be anything, right? It, the argument starts there. But then it becomes the search for the origin of the conflict and the argument escalates out further and further. And as it escalates out, it gets larger and larger. Volume goes up. Uh, language rhetoric will increase in, in, in violence. And then pretty soon you have this full blown fight leading to a divorce. And if you stop them at that moment, I said, what did this start with? They wouldn't remember. Right. Okay. But now we do this to the death. Now, if we would have, done if we would have stayed this way in this harmonization process there would have been no humans we'd have just wiped each other out so groups experiencing this kind of crisis non-consciously and this is very very important it's non-conscious humans at some point some weaker member of the group was pointed out and someone began attacking and then the whole group attacked well that creates a cathartic event and hostility's gone and everybody's happy As we move into consciousness, we take that event and we now have to interpret that event. So the first thing we do is we say that all this bad stuff that happened, this figure, this was a demon from the other, the bad side. And all the good stuff that came to us was a, was from God. So we turn our demon into a God. We, we, that's how we create religion. That's why all of our gods are two-faced. First they're demonized, then they're divinized and there's religion. Now, in this process, you and I are in an argument, and we will go uh, as as rivals until till one of us is dead. We have this new mechanism now, and it functions as a support. We use a little violence to stop greater violence. It's kind of a homeopathic thing. So have you ever seen Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, her short story, The Lottery? It's a brilliant example. It takes place, you know, 1950s New England. And, you know, every year the town has this wonderful lottery 
and um, you know numbers are picked and and uh, you know and there's a blessing afterwards and a big celebration. Well, the the, the number that gets picked that that person that has that number becomes the victim of the town. They stone them, mm-hmm. right? Kind of like a Stephen King novel, but sure. 50 years ago. And what's well, so the so the narrator? You know, this woman, she's just loving this festival they do every year until that year her numbers call, and then she's no, it can't be. This is not right. Kind of thinking. So, but we do this as a species all the time. I mean, faculty do it when they get together and, and three or four of them don't like this other faculty member. You know, they, okay, we do that po- politically. If, you know, we, we had three or four guests on the show, we are, we're all one persuasion. You know, we, we just naturally want to say somebody else is our problem. Mm-hmm. And so this mechanism that we use to destroy people, groups, dest- all again, the all against one mechanism is to really keep us from destroying from an all against all, that Hobbesian theme of all against all. That's why we humans engage in scapegoating. And that's why God has come in Jesus to say this mechanism is now officially broken. The cross of Christ breaks that mechanism wide open. And it shows us that all against one is a lie. When Caiaphas says it's better that one man die than the nation perish, you know, it's better that a couple of immigrants die in a detention camp, you know, than that it's better that, you know, a few black lives get lost on the street by police than it's better. That, you know, when you have that kind of logic, you're, you are right in the sacrificial mode and the, the cross breaks that apart and says it's a lie. Every life counts. Every life counts. Hey, folks, let's take a pause from the discussion to mention why you should contribute to The Bob Murphy Show. I don't want to do ads. I think that would change the flavor of the podcast and so i rely on support directly provided by you the listener and so i'm going to ask you if you like the show the content i provide and you haven't done so already why don't you uh give it a whirl go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute thanks for listening well this i think is a good segue to i wanted to read this other excerpt from your introduction to knowing god you, you had earlier in this established what's called consumer Christianity, and I think people can just the title know what that means. But you said, which is really interesting, this consumer Christianity has a wife, empire. It has always been a married duo from the time of Constantine in the fourth century until the present. Consumer Christianity is empire Christianity. It is a religion that caters to the masses but feeds them empty calories, offers poisonous water to drink, uses, abuses, and confuses people. So what what is that? Can you elaborate on that link between what you're calling consumer Christianity and empire with a capital E? Sure. When you come to the first 200, very clearly, the first 200 years of uh, Mm -hmm. church history, it's absolutely clear that the early Christians around the empire, this is empire-wide, would have nothing to do with the empire. And it created a conundrum around the 180s when soldiers were getting converted. Mm-hmm. And the question was, could they carry the sword? And this was very important. And there were lots of debates on this. But up to this point, the entire church is pacifistic. So when the state arrests them for crimes, uh, usually you know, uh, cannibalism, pedophilia, all the general things that governments like to throw at people and claim that they are when they're you know, trying to scapegoat them, when the Christians are arrested, they do not resist, and they go to their martyrdom. You know, so in the three in the in the two hundreds, rather in the third century, we begin seeing greater and greater frustration on the part of the church 
because A, Jesus has not returned. B, life is going to crap. Uh, as you move toward the late, uh, in, in, the, in the third century, you know, the commodity got terribly debased under Commodus, right? And so it's just, it's, it's just chaos. And when Diocletian comes along finally and basically um, begins his uh, pogrom against the Christians, uh, they go through, you know, 13 years of misery. Constantine comes on the scene, puts an end to that. And all they can say is he's our savior. He stopped us from getting wiped out, you know? And so you have Constantine's vision of the sign of the cross in the sky interpreted to him by the Spanish Bishop Hosius of Cordoba. Yes, the Jesus is the God is we're with you. We're here. We're the Christian church. We're, we're your church, you know? And bam, from that moment on, everything the bishops do is going to be oriented toward kissing empires. Mm -hmm. Oops, excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> but that's what it's, that's what's happened in church. And you look at evangelicalism today, my God, I've never seen a and fundamentalism, a greater group of idol worshipers than I do these pastors mm -hmm. and Mr. Trump. Mm -hmm. The idol worship there is unbelievable. Can, can you, that's something that I've pondered myself, you know, so, by the way, so my background's like, I was raised Roman Catholic. I spent a period where I called myself a devout atheist. I thought that was clever. And then God just grabbed me and, you know, I realized I was wrong. Um, and then now I'm Father, a pr so Protestant. Yeah. So, um, and then I, I did bounce around different ones and, and I had been in Nashville, and so especially down south, it was amazing to me. There was one where it was like the anniversary of 9-11. In my church, they played a compilation from Fox News, and everybody except me and a handful of others stood up and clapped at the end. And and I just, you know, politics aside, like I was just, do you have thoughts on, like, why is it that the American, especially evangelical church is so you know, such support for the troops is a, you know, anyway, well, here's, you get the point. Uh, I'm the, just curious. I think the thing is, is that the, the evangelical fundamentalist um, church tradition, it's quite varied and broad because, you know, it includes mm -hmm. the charismatics and this mm -hmm. and that. You can't say Methodist because some Methodists are and some aren't, but, 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 but broadly speaking, they're defending a view that God wrote the Bible. Mm -hmm. Their faith, their trust is not in God or the Father, their faith or trust is in this book that's perfect. They've been told is perfect. So for what now, 200 and 220 years, 240 years in America has been this battle. And you got the one group saying the Bible's God's word, and you got the other group coming at it and shredding it apart and saying, no, it's a worthless piece of junk. Well, mm -hmm. neither is right. And yet mm -hmm. those seem to be the only two alternatives on offer out there in Christendom in America. So this battle for the Bible is precisely what has produced the problem that we're at today. Here's what I find bizarre. Let me just give you an idea what I find bizarre. Let's talk Supreme Court. So we have the recent ruling on the LGBT workplace, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Conservative Neil Gorsuch. Gor Gorsuch. I, I can't. I think remember. Gorsuch is right. Yeah. He's the conservative. He says, I'm going to just do a strict constructionist textual reading. I'm not interested in the intention of the author. I'm only interested in what the text says, right? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. But that, that same Neil Gorsuch will go to church on Sunday, open his Bible and say, 
I'm looking for the heart of God, or I'm looking for the intention of the author. Mm-hmm. You with me? Yeah. Why is there that dualism in this in the heads of every single evangelical politician, judge, you name it? They all function with that binary. They're strict constructionists when it comes to the Constitution, but they're strangely not when it comes to their Bible. And yet it's their Bible that's authorizing the morality that they're trying to read into their strict constructionism. So in other words, you have a completely hypocritical hermeneutic going on in the minds Mm -hmm. of, of, of these leaders. They're not consistent. There's no consistency. Again, Gnostic, dualistic, um, it's American. It's 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 it, to be Gnostic and dualistic is is American as apple pie, mom baseball, and Chevrolet. Right, right. The, well, the academics I've met, I rarely meet an academic that's not dualistic somewhere, or Gnostic somewhere, mm-hmm. especially if they're seeking tenure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but okay. the academics just as bad. Yeah. The, you know, I mean, we live in it in a time where all of our institutions have now failed us. All of our institutions have failed us. The church, government, the academy, media. Uh, bank, uh, I, I mean, we, we are living in a truly amazing um, apocalyptic time where everything is changing. And because we are now so interconnected and so interrelated with the internet, uh, globalization and everything else, is this is going to feel, for the human species, this is going to feel like the apocalypse. And that's mm-hmm. where the, you know, except you got all the Christians out there and they're going to go through it. They're going to go, we're, we're going to get raptured. We're going to go, why aren't we getting raptured? What's the rapture? You know? <laughs> exactly. And they will be left behind just like the rest of us. <laughs> Let me ask you if, if I can transition this, because this looked really interesting. I wanted to get your take. So I'm looking at your CV that you sent me. And one of your invited essays is titled, Hell, colon, The Final Refuge of Sacrificial Religion. So can you give us a, a su- summary of what you're, what you're arguing in that essay? One second. Okay. Bob, you know how it is. You write stuff. You're so writing so much, you can't remember what you said. <laughs> I have no idea what I said. I'm going to have to look it up here. Okay. It was in the Kevin Miller book, if that helps. Yeah, this is in the book, Hellraise. Yep. Uh, Kevin made a movie called Hellbound. Yeah, uh, your hearers might be interested in, and... Uh, I'm in that movie as well as a number many other excellent interviewers. Um, yeah, because the whole book's a reflection on the movie. Let's see. I'm 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 talking. I do talk about the issue of. Um, well, I'll just. Can I read? Yeah, go ahead. All Protestant doctrine that flows from Reformed Orthodoxy, conservative Lutheranism, and most Anabaptist sects is epistemologically dependent on a theory of inspiration that sacralizes the biblical text in a suspect in its docetism, that it's it's not really uh, human, it just looks human. Human writers were, you know, just kind of manipulated by the divine when they wrote the book. Evangelicals who are willing to move away a bit from this docetism insist on cultural context to interpret moral codes, but fail to ask the deeper question. Are there texts in the Bible that claim to be from God or about God but which have nothing to do with God and our human projections upon divinity. Why does it seem so hard to say that what one finds in the Jewish scriptures are competing views of God? One finds the same conflict in the New Testament documents. I I mean, I just said that just a minute ago. I talk about sacrificial logic. 
Mimetic theory demonstrates that the doctrine of hell originates in human sacrificial practice, which was then deceitfully covered over in the way the community retold the story of what happened. We just kind of did that. Once the afterlife became a topic for human reflection, a place was needed to guarantee the scapegoat's eternal conscious torment, thus Tartarus, Hades, Gehenna, hell. Theories of religion have tended to presuppose transcendence, that a, a God concept exists, and they move on to discuss divine human relations. Girard proposes a theory of religion where the gods originated in the ugly process of humanization known as ritual sacrificial scapegoating and the consequent decision to credit the benefits of scapegoating, the resulting cohesion, cooperation, and communal harmony to the victim, thus divinizing her. So, I, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm dealing, I talk about the doctrine of hell collapsing in the Christian tradition, partly from the influence of the East, uh, partly from uh, post-Enlightenment thinking. Uh, I do deal with Bart in here, uh, Second Temple Jewish studies, and how they're perceiving the afterlife. I reference my friend Brad Jerzak, uh, his great book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. That's it. Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. I mean, I guess that's where I'm going. Okay, well, how about this? Let me say something in the new response. So a standard strain in a lot of Protestantism is, you know, we're all by our nature sinners and bound for hell, but at least for some, and again, depends on the nuances of, of which sect, but because, not through any work of your own or any merit of your own, but God, perhaps in predestination, chose some people as the elect. Who knows why? It's up to his, you know, mystery of his choice. And they get saved, but the rest of them are going to hell. I'm guessing you don't endorse that narrative. Well, what let, let's let's say I wanted to ask inquire about that narrative. So where does it start? It starts with you're a sinner. Mm -hmm. The gospel does not begin with you're a sinner. The gospel begins with you're a forgiven sinner. Mm -hmm. That's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. James Ellison observes this in his book, The Joy of Being Wrong. Brilliant book, The Joy mm -hmm. of Being his PhD thesis. And in that book, he points out that we only know forgiveness. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We only know sin as it's passing away from us. That is in, in the act of being forgiven. Okay. Mm -hmm. Doug Campbell, in his he's a Pauline scholar, a scholar of the Apostle Paul, probably the most brilliant scholar in uh, the 20th century that's alive today in biblical studies. And um, I think personally, the most important thinker after Marcion to have engaged the Apostle Paul. Um, but Doug talks about reading forward and reading backward. And his argument is that Christianity, it starts from the wrong place. It starts with the problem and moves to the solution. The issue with that is if you start with the problem, your definition of the problem is going to determine your definition of the solution because the solution has to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. The gospel gives us the solution. It takes us to the cross, and it asks us, what's the problem? Mm -hmm. As long as we fail to recognize that the problem is the violence that's happening here, the scapegoat mechanism, and we turn around and we try to turn it into religion, we try to make it a God thing, well, God's point is wrath of Jesus, bop, bop, bop. I, I ask people, I have my students do exercise an exercise. I say, um, we're going to take one of the passion narratives. It doesn't really matter. But Matthew, it doesn't work so well. But Mark, Luke, and John, and John are fine. And I tell them, go through the passion narrative. I said, find God. God's missing. You don't mm -hmm. see anything about God. And yet, 
And yet the Apostle Paul can say God was in Christ reconciling the world to God's self. But when we look at that picture, that narrative, there's no God. There's no God there, right? Do you remember Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ? Yeah. doesn't really matter what you think about it one way or the other. I happen to take Gibson's three films, Apocalypto, The Passion, and his um, Hacksaw Ridge. There is a, a beautiful and, and fascinating connecting theme that, that would make a great show sometime, those three films. But in The Passion of the Christ, the only time you see anything relation to God, even as a symbol, is as Jesus is dying, the camera angle shifts to the sky looking down through a teardrop or a drop of rain. And that camera drops like this. Mm -hmm. It's the only thing you get from the perspective of God is this raindrop or this teardrop. It was sheer cinematic genius. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the gospel. The gospel starts with the solution. Bob, you're a forgiven sinner. There's nothing you can do that can separate you from the Father. You're forgiven. That's an announcement. It's a fait accompli. It's fact, mm -hmm. right? In a postmodern world, it's datum. You know, you are forgiven. Whereas the church has turned that around, brings law in front. You're forgiven if you repent. Mm -hmm. You're forgiven if you say the sinner's prayer. You're forgiven if you go to mass. You're forgiven if, you know, that's not the gospel. The gospel begins with an announcement. So you come to the upper room at the, at the, uh, after uh, the crucifixion on that Sunday. And you've got the disciples hanging out in that upper room and they're terrified. They are terrified. I mean, their world has collapsed on them. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know where they're at in relation to anybody in their culture and let alone God. And then all of a sudden Jesus appears in their midst and they have to change their pampers. <laughs> Why? Because what are they expecting? What they're expecting can be seen and what he says to them, first word is shalom, peace. Mm -hmm. No issue here. There's no, okay, shalom, right? Peace. That is the eschatological word. That's the final word. When he comes with that word peace, do not be afraid. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to fear here. We don't have that kind of relationship. We never did. He has absolutely blown away their thinking about God. So. We, we have to, we, we have to, to take all of this. There's a, I wouldn't need to be a theologian if there just, if there wasn't a garbage dump sitting on top of the gospel and I, and Jesus gave me a shovel and said, just go shovel. And that's all I'm trying to do is my one part. Mm -hmm. and I know there are others out there shoveling the junk away from the gospel, you know, and, but I think this, the time has come and I mm -hmm. uh, think that there are uh, any number of us who sense a call uh, on our lives to take the risks that we're taking. And I've been kicked out of every Protestant church I've been a member of. Mm -hmm. you know, I've been a threat to every pastor and every congregation because they don't like it when Michael comes up after the sermon and says, you know, you claim this, but really you look at mm -hmm. that. And uh, yeah, so I've been kicked out of just about every group I've been in. <laughs> Well, if, even the Club on Violence and Religion, the Girardian group, uh -huh. uh, has non-consciously used me as a scapegoat. I was going to, uh, it's took my joke. I mean, yeah, it's absolutely because yeah. I will not conform. Right. I don't give a shit what you think. I, can, I don't give a damn what anybody thinks. I have a calling. <laughs> I have a voice in my head. I'm following. So can I ask you on the, and, and I'm doing this just for the benefit of the list because I've heard uh, some of the, um, was it Jerzek? 
Yeah, Brad Jerzak. Yeah, I've heard, I've seen some some things he's done on this too. So I, I'm just give, setting the, the ability for you to respond. So a lot of standard Protestants hearing you say that would be like, oh, Michael, that sounds nice. Believe me, I would like to believe there's not a hell and we're all saved. But look, Jesus talks more about hell than about heaven. And, you know, there's plenty of passages that at least superficially or prima facie looks like he's saying, some of you are with me and are mine and some are not. And the ones who aren't, guess where you're and going? where are they to be found in the Gospel of Matthew? Mm-hmm. You don't find them and you, you have a little saying in Mark there that's directed to the priests about better to go uh, maimed into heaven than whole into hell. He's talking to the priests. Other than that, you don't find that in the Luke Acts tradition. You don't find it in the Johannine tradition. You don't find it in the Pauline tradition outside of the Thessalonian literature, which is still written under that spell. So to the evangelical, I would say, I'll tell you what, when you go to the Gospels, if you got a red letter edition and you think you're every word from Jesus, you don't get it. And if you have never sat down and with all four Gospels, synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke side by side and looked at sayings, same context, same everything, but very different. And if you can't sort out, you suss out in your mind, there, there's some real differences here in the way these writers are portraying Jesus. There are substantive differences. And if, you, if you're not willing to own that, you're willing to own it in your own time. You're willing to say the liberals have their Jesus. You know, Jerry Falwell had his Jesus. Uh, Batman has his Jesus. You're willing to do that. Why aren't you willing to do it with the four gospel writers and Paul? Mm-hmm. Off the top of your head, do you have any example of what you mean like by the side by side where they're clearly talking about the same episode and yet what you would think Jesus meant is different from writer um, to writer? Yeah, well... You could, without, I would have to get technical into Greek and Aramaic and translation okay, issues at right. certain points. But let me, let me just show, give you, for example, you have a parable uh, of a king mm-hmm. uh, who invites people to a, a, a wedding feast and they give their reasons they can't come. And then uh, the king says, well, you go out to the highways and byways, just, just invite everybody, bring them, bring them right. in. I want guests. I want to, I want to, I want to have a feast. Right. And, and, and they come in and they have a feast. Now, that's in the Gospel of Luke, okay? When you turn to Matthew, same parable, but at the end, the king gets enraged and he's going to go slaughter all the people who didn't want to come to his feast, right, right? Right, So I say to myself, why do we have two different versions? Why does the Lucan version omit the vengeance saying, or why does the Matthean version include the vengeance saying? What's going on here? So then I have to go read the doctoral dissertations on the persecution of the Matthean community and the social history of the Matthean community. And I have to look at vengeance as a theme in Matthew or Lex Talionis, the law of tit for tat, eye for eye, tooth for tooth in Matthew and how that's used. I go examine the Sermon on the Mount and I look at the, the uh, after the Beatitudes, the verses, you know, I've not come to destroy the law, I've come to fulfill it. And I have to go, you know, nowhere else in the gospel tradition does Jesus even approach that. So why is this happening with this author? I mean, Jesus freely is violating uh, both Torah and Torah interpretation, you know? Um, so why why is Matthew trying to make Jesus look like a good Jew? Well, because look at what Matthew's writing. He's writing in Antioch in the 80s, post-destruction of the temple. Judaism is regrouping. The Jewish Christian community is regrouping. And both the synagogue and the Jewish Christian church are claiming to be the heir of Israel the true Israel, and there's going to be that conflict. Now, if Paul, if the Jewish synagogue knows about Paul or Pauline Christ, Jewish Christ, or Pauline Gentile Christians and how libertarian they are, 
Well, they're going to go, we can't have that, Jesus. And all that you have to do is write a gospel that says, no, 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 no. Jesus isn't like Paul says. He's a real law-abiding kind of guy, and here's our picture. of. That's what you get with Matthew. And it's understandable. It's mm-hmm. absolutely understandable. You know? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so it's, it's, do you think what Matthew wrote was the inspired word of God? Do you like no, that no, sense? No, there's no such thing mm-hmm. as the inspired word of God. It doesn't exist. Okay. God doesn't inspire texts. God uses texts. The mm-hmm. Spirit interprets, but inspiration, no. I do. I, the theory of inspiration is nothing more than a, a form of um, mystery cult mania. You know, I mean, let me let's put it this way: there were rabbis in the time of Jesus and Paul that said the Torah preexisted in heaven, and even God obeyed the Torah. Muslims claim that the Quran was dictated. Joseph Smith claims that he was dictated to. I mean, anybody can claim to be inspired. Anybody can claim inspiration. Can Mm. you prove it? Nope. Let me give you an example. If the Bible's inspired, God is perfect. God wrote the Bible. Therefore, the Bible is perfect. If you want to go that route, ask yourself one simple question. Does God suffer from Alzheimer's? Because apparently in the 70s and 80s, when Matthew, Mark, and Luke were being written, Jesus is arrested after a meal, tortured all night long, crucified the next day, and that's Friday. Because he has the Passover meal on Thursday night. But you go to the Gospel of John, Jesus has a meal, is arrested, tortured all night long, crucified, and the Jews, according to John 18, 28, will not enter the praetorium, that is the, the where palaces, the, the Portus Antonia on the top of the temple. They'll come up so far, but they won't go into to his Gentile neck of the woods up there because they don't want to be unclean for the festival says they wouldn't enter because the passover had not yet happened because it would happen that night in john's Mm -hmm. gospel jesus is dying on calvary the same time the passover lambs are being slaughtered in the temple for that evening's meal in matthew mark and luke jesus already had the passover meal and he dies the day after so did god happen to forget what day jesus i see what am i going to tell the writer of john Uh, i can't find matthew mark and luke i don't remember what i told him i'll let him die on thursday is that what happened? You know, you have a theory of inspiration. And your theory of inspiration could never solve the Janus face God problem. A theory of inspiration just says all pieces of the Bible are equal. And it's like a giant jigsaw puzzle that's five billion pieces. And God gives it to us. And he says, make the picture. But I'm not going to give you the picture you're making. you got to go sort, sort it out. That's how fundamentalist evangelicals and all Protestants treat scripture. Basically, our scripture has been treated since forever. Mm-hmm. We have been given the interpretive grid, and the interpretive grid is Jesus Christ on the cross crucified. That's the grid. That's the hermeneutic. Paul recognized that. The writer of the fourth gospel has a profound theology of the cross, huge, hugely profound theology of the cross. So does Luke. Mm -hmm. Luke acts, the writer of Luke. Okay, well, take Luke's parable of the prodigal son. You want something Mm -hmm. non sacrificial, the son splits after wanting the father's inheritance, right? Mm -hmm. Comes back. And does the father say, you have to repent? Does the father say, I'm not taking you back? You were bad. You wanted me dead. You hated me. No. Before the son can utter a word, the father sees him from the distance and runs to him. Yeah. That's God. You see, we tell people in the church, you've got to run to God. No, just sit still or just keep walking. God is running to you. That's the gospel. God is good. The father mm-hmm. makes all things work together for good to those that are, are in love with him and working together. I mean, it's amazing. 
Amen. All right. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, I think we're out of time. And we should wrap up here. It's I been a fascinating to talk economics with you. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah. But that's. <laughs> By the way, let me let me just say this. Okay. I um as a as a professional teacher for forty years, I'm always uh, looking to write books uh, that bring complicated things like theology and and stuff down mm-hmm. to earth and. And I am always grateful when I find a book that does that for me. And I can't begin to tell you how much I really appreciate your. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a limb here, and I'm gonna kind of call it both a paraphrase and a scientific update of uh, Mises' Human Action. I, I can't tell you how it just has opened my eyes. It's, it's given me a framework. It's helped, I just I just would love to sit in your class sometime as a student if I ever could could do that. I, I imagine you would. Uh, you're the same kind of teacher I am. You're just fun. I appreciate that a lot. You're talking about choice. Is that yeah. what you're? you're choice, yeah, choice. I, yeah. Choice. Okay. I, I I appreciate that. And what's interesting about that is, it was only like every time I reread Human Action, I understood it better because in the beginning it was incomprehensible is a strong word, but <laughs> by the end, by the you know sixth or seventh reading, I understood like why he chose the chapter sequence that he did. Whereas before that didn't even occur to me, but but by the time I wrote Choice, I was like, oh, this is why he did part one, part two, part three, and this is where you know what I mean. So it was, you, you get a certain comfort level to right. them. You can't explain it to someone else until you understand it, and it wasn't until that point. So, and it's but I, I, von Mises would have died when we were teenagers. Is that right? It was in the early. I think it was seventy three. Yeah, we were teenagers, or I was. You were. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I think I think my dad was was asking my mom out for a date at that point. But <laughs> well, okay. Well, listen, um, thank you for the invitation here today. Greetings to all of your listeners. My books are a cure for insomnia. Don't buy them. <laughs> well, self-deprecation aside, so my guest folks has been Michael Harden. And of course, if you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash one two seven. That's the episode number. I'll have links to all of his material. Uh, Michael, this was fascinating, and thanks so much for being a part of the show. Thank you, sir. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.